0: Ezekiel chapter 31, verses 1 through 18. Ezekiel 31, 1 through 18. Ezekiel says, In the 11th year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height. Its top among the clouds, the waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow. Around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field, its boughs grew large and its branches long. From abundant water and its shoots, all the birds of the heavens made their nests in, the bo- in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived, a, lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness and in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was, equal, was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God." Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as, we- as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it on the mountains and in the valleys, uh, in, in all the valleys, and its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or to set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees drink water, that drink water may reach up to them in height, for they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of man, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God. On the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who were slain by the sword. Yes, to those who were, who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you thus like in glory in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. Now, Ezekiel gets this oracle from God only two months after the previous prophecy that we saw at the end of our study last week in chapter 20, uh, chapter 30, verses 20 through 26. Uh, You'll see there, it was in the 11th year in the first month. And here it's the 11th year in the third month. So now God's given Ezekiel some rapid fire prophecies As you know, he's been spacing them out over time periods, but now about Egypt, he's given another one only two months later. Now, in telling Pharaoh about his coming judgment, God uses Assyria's previous might and splendor as evidence that God can take down mighty kingdoms. This prophecy that we just read came from God to Ezekiel in 587 B.C. Assyria fell In 609, God used the Babylonians to defeat the Assyrians in 609 BC. Remember, they count down toward the time of Jesus. So in 609, which happened prior to 587, Assyria had already fallen. So when Ezekiel gives this this prophecy to Pharaoh, he's using the fact that Assyria, who was mighty at one time, has already been defeated. And now in 587, he's telling Egypt, you're next. If God can do it to Assyria, God can do it to you and Egypt is going to fall in 568, 567 B.C. by Babylon as well in Nebuchadnezzar. But interestingly enough, God uses Assyria as a picture of the fact that he can take down a mighty nation and he's going to take down the mighty nation of Egypt. But he does it in a word picture where he describes Assyria as what? How does he describe Assyria there in verses 3 and following? As a, a mighty cedar tree. He used this word picture as Assyria was this... Tallest, most beautiful tree in Lebanon, a tree which stood above all the other trees. Now, God actually said this tree was so beautiful that it made even the trees of the Garden of Eden jealous. Isn't that interesting? Look at verses 8 and 9. As you read that with me, you probably thought, huh? How could they compare it to the trees of the Garden of Eden? Because most of us would just assume the most beautiful trees were the trees in the Garden of Eden. How could the tree that Assyria or the tree that represented Assyria be more beautiful than the trees of the Garden of Eden? Look at verses eight and nine again. The cedars in the Garden of God could not rival it, talking about Assyria, nor the fir trees equal its boughs, neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the Garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about this word picture that God's using of Assyria being this tree. But then he goes on and he says that the trees of the garden of Eden envied it. Now, keep in mind, when this prophecy happens, the garden of Eden doesn't exist anymore. The garden of Eden actually, though, it was in the area that Assyria was. If you go back and do your research, you'll find that the Genesis tells us where the Garden of Eden roughly was. And Assyria is roughly where the Garden of Eden used to be. But why does the Garden of Eden not exist anymore? Hmm? No, it's definitely tied to man's sin, but more than more specifically, why? The The flood. Because of the flood. Remember? The garden existed after Adam and Eve had been removed from it, and God put the cherubim outside the garden, guarding it so no one could get to the tree of life. But during the flood is when God deluged everything. And actually, scripturally, if you look closely at it, he did more than just have it rain. The waters of the deep came up. And I believe without question, the Bible shows us that during the time of the flood, he moves continents around and moved things around. And the topography was different by the time the flood was over. I honestly believe without question, the Grand Canyon was formed during the time of the flood was God did all the upheaval and everything that he did and and people are like well we found shark's teeth on tops of mountains duh During the flood, God did a lot of upheaval. But because Assyria was roughly where the Garden of Eden used to be, he uses this word picture of how the tree that is using to describe Assyria was more beautiful than the trees of the Garden of Eden, and the trees in the Garden of Eden envied it. Now, again, that makes us go, huh? But I want to show you that throughout Scripture, God uses the Garden of Eden as a picture for comparison. Go to chapter 36 here in Ezekiel. Look at verses 33 through 35. It says, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you, speaking to the nation of Israel, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. By the way, who are the only people that ever saw the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve. Did their kids ever see it? No, the kids never even got to see the Garden of Eden. But word had passed on as they remembered the stories of the Garden of Eden. It's always been, and I'm going to show you many more places, a picture of something magnificent and beautiful. And he said, here they're going to say when he rebuilds Jerusalem and redoes everything during the Millennial Kingdom, man, this desolate area has now become like the Garden of Eden. Go to Genesis chapter 13. I'm only just going to show you a few, but you'll see all through Scripture... God uses the Garden of Eden as a picture of something beautiful in comparison. In Genesis chapter 13, look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So here, when Lot depicts the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, he saw how beautiful it was, and it was watered like the garden of the Lord. Again, another picture of the word like we saw in Ezekiel 31. Go to Isaiah 51. In Isaiah chapter 51, look at verse 3. said, for the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Go to Joel chapter 2. One more place. I'll just show you one more. Go to Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. It says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it's near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So again, we see that God uses all through the Scripture the Garden of Eden as a picture of something beautiful and wonderful. And so when he says here in Ezekiel chapter 31 that this tree that is being a picture of Assyria was more beautiful than all the cedar trees in the Garden of Eden, he's simply saying, well, look at verse 9. God said, I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches and all the trees of Eden envied it. They were in the garden of God. He's just simply saying that Assyria was a beautiful, amazing place that God had made. And he used the picture of this Assyria being this big tower towering tree that all the other nations, all the other trees around it were watered by it and they, they lived off of it as well. But God tells Pharaoh that he has cut down the great tree of Assyria. Look at verses 10 through 13. Therefore thus says the Lord God, because it, Assyria, towered high and set its top among the clouds, and its heart was proud of its height, I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, past tense, have already cut it down and left it. On the mountains and all the valleys, its branches have fallen, and its boughs have been broken, in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. So God is telling, through Ezekiel, telling the king of Egypt, who are you like in your greatness? You see there at the end of verse 2, who are you like in your greatness? Remember Assyria and how powerful they were? They were a world kingdom. I chop them down, and I can take you down as well, and I will. But interestingly, and this is just a fun little thing we're going to chase for a second, God uses this exact same imagery of a great tree to humble Nebuchadnezzar, the one that God's going to be using to bring judgment on Egypt. Right around the same time, and I've done some research on this the best I can, right around the same time that God is giving Ezekiel this picture of this great tree that towers up to the clouds and how he's going to chop it down, picturing Assyria, Right around that same time, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And I want you to see it. Go to Daniel chapter 4, because Nebuchadnezzar is about to get a dream from God, and he's going to be the great tree. Daniel chapter 4. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, because I want you to see how it all plays out. But notice how right around the same time, God's using the same imagery to humble Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4 of Daniel, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in the bed The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation." At last Daniel came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and whom was the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. "...the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth." It's leaves were beautiful and it's fruit abundant and it, food, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump ...of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the, lo- of the holy ones, to the end that the loving, living mind know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And he gives it to whom he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men... This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies." "'The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, "'so that its top reached to heaven "'and was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant, "'and which was food for all, "'under which the beasts of the field found shade, "'and whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. "'It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong.' And it was commanded that to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom, shall be confirmed for, for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that pe- may, may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? (coughs) Excuse me. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised the and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. For all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, we don't know how long the seven periods of time is. Some people think it was seven years, some people think it was seven months. We don't know. But it, that word that's translated here in the ESV, seven periods of time, is like our word dozen. If I say to you, I have a dozen, what do I have? Twelve of what? I didn't say, did I? It's just we know that I have 12 of something. This word is like our word dozen. It's seven something. We don't know. It could have been seven months. It could have been seven years. We don't know how long it was. But as you take a look at it, when this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, at that time he was king over the whole earth, I think it was probably after the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's kind of proud, but remember it was a year later after the destruction of Jerusalem that he goes to fight against Tyre, and that fight goes for 13 years, but maybe that went on, maybe this happened during the time that they were besieging Tyre, because Nebuchadnezzar didn't have to be involved in it during the whole 13 years, the army could have started it, but he dies not long after the destruction of Egypt, if you do a history study of Nebuchadnezzar, you'll find that just not many years after he finishes defeating Egypt, he dies. So I don't know specifically when this episode happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's interesting to me that right around the same time that God is using this picture of this great tree that goes to the tops of the clouds and all the birds live in the branches and the beasts of the field are under it and all the other trees around it are taken care of by this great tree and they, they, they prosper because of it. And then God chops that tree down of Assyria... God uses the same kind of a picture in a dream for Nebuchadnezzar, the one he's going to use to chop down Egypt. Isn't that interesting? But what is God's purpose? What's he trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar? What's he trying to teach Pharaoh? Yeah, you need to be humble. And I control Who has power and who doesn't? I control who's in authority. Keep also in mind that part of what was going on with Assyria was the fact that Assyria was not only prosperous, all the other nations around them, they did well because of it. And as we saw last week, Israel had leaned on Egypt a few times too, had they not? Let me just ask you a simple question. If God were to today totally wipe out a nation, to show the surrounding nations that he controls who's in authority, who could he choose? Yeah. yeah? But is there not a strong chance he could choose us? Oh, let me ask you another question. Israel has leaned on the United States for many years, and we're supposed to be a friend of Israel. We're supposed to be helping Israel. The Bible says those who bless Israel, he'll bless, but don't miss this. If God's desires is that Israel ultimately relies on him, would he not possibly, according to scripture and past history, need to do something so that America is not there for Israel to lean on? Folks, I'm just saying this because I don't know specifically how it plays out, but I don't really find the U.S. much in the U.S., and I'll get right to you. I don't find the U.S. very much in the scriptures for the last days and the prophecies of what all is going to play out. That's why we need to be praying. For our leadership, that we would be humble and submitted before God, because He'll exalt whoever He chooses to, but He exalts the humble. And He humbles the proud. Go ahead. That was my comment. What, what country is more openly proud than Exactly. Yes. As we look at why, and, and I want you to see that, go to verses 14 through 17 of Ezekiel 31. I want you to notice why God did what he did in bringing Assyria down, or let me put it to you this way, one of the reasons why he did in bringing, what he did in bringing Assyria down. I want to caution you from ever saying, I know what God's doing. The moment you say you know what God's doing, you've just shown your ignorance. Because God's doing way more than one thing at a time. He's doing hundreds of things at all at the same time. He's got purposes that are beyond our understanding. But one of the things that the scripture shows us that he was doing, look at verses 14 through 17. He chopped down Assyria all this was in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds and that no trees drink that drink water may reach up to them in height for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man to those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that Cedar went the cedar went down to Sheol, that's Assyria, I caused mourning, I closed the deep over it, and restrained its rivers, and many waters were stopped, I clothed Lebanon and gloom for it, and all the trees of the field, that's the other nations around. Fainted because of it, and I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, that's the surrounding nations now, he's describing them as the trees of Eden because of how beautiful he had made Assyria and the surrounding nations. All the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who were slain by the sword, yes, to those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Now, God was using Assyria to teach the surrounding nations the foolishness of earthly power and strength. Because you know that the surrounding nations, living under the prosperity of Assyria and the benefit of being a friend of Assyria while they were exalting themselves, probably would have had an attitude that says, hey, maybe we can become a powerful nation too. And God said, I brought them down because of their pride to show that I control who is, a, who is in charge and who's in authority. Actually, I'm fully in charge. But I also did it so the surrounding nations would not try to do this for themselves as well. Didn't he do the same thing to Satan in Isaiah 14? Yes, he did. He did the same thing to Satan in Isaiah 14. It's been the battle that's been going on all along. That was the original battle in that way. But you're right, Duke. Now, when God judged Assyria, as I just read to you, He also judged some surrounding nations, and he brought them all down to... You notice those words that keep being used in this whole section, to death? You see, look at the end of verse 14. For they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of men who are those who go down to the pit, down to Sheol. Sheol. And all through this whole section, you'll see those words being used interchangeably. Down to Sheol, down to the pit, down to the world below, down to death, the grave. Now, I'm not going to do a study of the pit and Sheol or the grave. I wanted to, but I really felt like God said, I want you to keep moving with where we're going to go. That's another study for another time. But the scripture is very clear. This is the place of the wicked dead. Another place is it's called Hades. As you remember from the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16, and it wasn't a parable because it's a real story because he had names of the individuals. And he told in Luke 16 the story of the rich man and Lazarus and how the rich man was buried and he awoke in Hades. What I want you to catch on first is this, and don't miss it from what we read. The rich man was conscious in his place of torment. He awoke in Hades and he realized where he was, and if you know, he's fully conscious of what's going on around him. And the scripture also says here, look closely at the, uh, verse uh, 16. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, and all the drink water were comforted in the world below. They went down to Sheol with it, those who were slain by the sword. Isn't that interesting? He said they were comforted. The other surrounding nations, when God judged Assyria and sent them down to the pit, and sent the surrounding nations down to the pit at that time, the surrounding nations, when they ended up in the pit, Sheol, the grave, were comforted when they saw Assyria there as well. Now, we need to go a little bit deeper here. In one weird way, we could read this as the other nations were comforted in a sense when they saw that mighty Assyria joined them in the pit, kind of like misery loves company. Kind of reads that way, doesn't it? But I want you to understand, I think the scripture shows us that it's a deeper understanding than that misery loves company. Because let's be honest. How many of us have heard people tell the jokes and the stories about how I'm not worried about being in hell long as my buddies are there. I'll feel better, you know, my buddies are there. And, you know, hey, Joe, good to see you in hell. You know, I'm glad I'm, you know, I feel better that you're here. Hey, we're going to have a great. I don't think the Bible's telling us that the surrounding nations were like, oh, Syria's here too? Good. I feel better. That's not really what I think the scripture's teaching us. And so in order to really get a deeper understanding of this one passage, we got to do like I told you. Look at context. Look at the other passages of Scripture. And so I'm going to do something a little different in our study tonight. I'm going to jump over to chapter 32, but we're going to jump to the last part of chapter 32. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to come back and cover verses 1 through 16 of 32. But by going to Ezekiel 32, 17 through 32 it will give us more insight into what it means that they were comforted in the pit, because chapter 32 deals with it some more. So let's go over to chapter 32 and look at verses 17 to 32. It says, In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. All right. So now we see that Ezekiel's told that who's to go down to the pit, to the world below? Egypt. You see it in verse 18? Wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down, her and the daughters of majestic nations, to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. And then again, there's that similar question. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away in all her multitudes. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Oh, Assyria is there. And all her company, its graves and all around it, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, whose graves are set in the uttermost parts of the pit. Her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her multitude around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised into the world below, who spread their terror in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit." They have made her a bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for terror of them was spread in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. O Meshach Tubal is there, and all her multitude, her graves and all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, for they spread their terror in the land of the living." And they do not lie with the mighty, the fallen from among the uncircumcised, who went down to Sheol with their weapons of war, whose swords were laid under their heads and whose iniquities upon their bones. For the terror of the mighty men was in the land of the living. But as for you, you shall be broken and lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. Edom is there, her kings and all her princes, who for all their might are laid with those who are killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. The princes of the north are there, all of them, and the, all the Sidonians who have gone down in shame with the slain for all the terror they caused by their might. They, fought, they lie uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Look at verse 31. When Pharaoh sees them, He will be comforted for all his multitude, Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, declares the Lord, for I spread terror in the land of the living. He shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword, Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. So here in this part of chapter 32, it kind of ties a little bit with what we saw at the end of chapter 31. That God tells Ezekiel, you tell Egypt, they're going down to the pit, they're going down to Sheol, they're going down to the grave, and they're going to lay there with all the uncircumcised. And what that simply means is, those who have been, haven't been set apart for God. The Bible says that when we, through faith in Jesus Christ, receive salvation, we are circumcised, not with the hands of men, but by the Spirit of God. We're set apart the, the circumcision that God had the nation of Israel do to the male children was a mark that set them apart as separate and holy and special before God. And here when it talks about they're going to be in the pit with all the uncircumcised, all those who have not been marked, set apart, as special to God as his. And, but at the same time, he goes on and he says, oh, by the way, Assyria is going to be there, Pharaoh. And meshach Tubal's going to be there and Elam and Edom and all these nations, the Sidonians. All these ones that I've been talking about judging, they're going to be there. And Pharaoh, when he sees them, will be comforted for all his multitude. Now, again, is the scripture teaching us that Pharaoh's going to go, Oh, cool. Let me check two balls here. Awesome. Elam and Edom. Good to see you guys. No, it appears that this is not a good thing. Over and over, it's very clear that they're going to be judged And this is not a good thing. So what does it mean then when it says that all the other nations that went down with Assyria would be comforted when they see Assyria there? And what does it mean when Pharaoh will be comforted in all his multitude when he sees the other nations there? The answer actually has already been given to us in chapter 14 of Ezekiel. And you might not remember it, so it's okay. Go back with me to Ezekiel chapter 14. This is simply much more than misery loves company. In Ezekiel chapter 14. When God is speaking through Ezekiel to the nation of Israel about the wickedness of the nation of Israel and how wicked they've been. He makes this statement in verses 22 and 23. He says, "But behold, some survivors will be left in it," talking about when he judges Jerusalem. "Some survivors will be left in it, sons and daughters who will be brought out. Behold, when they come out to you, you will see their ways and their deeds." and you will be consoled for the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, for all that I have brought upon it. They will console you, or comfort you, if you will, when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. Do you you see the slight difference here that hopefully helps you? And he said, when I judge Jerusalem because of their wickedness, you all that have been taken into captivity, when you see the, the men and women that survived the city and come out and you see the wickedness of them and the deeds that they have done, you'll understand that when I judged Israel and destroyed Jerusalem, I did it because I was right. In other words, he says, you'll know that I haven't done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. In other words, God's saying to them, look, you may not understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. But on the day that that happens and you see just the ones who survive. And you see the wickedness of the ones who survive. You'll realize that I was right in doing what I did. Let me ask you a simple question. If God were to judge America right now and to wipe it off the face of the earth, would he be right in doing so? He would be right. Actually, we see this same picture in Revelation when God takes the the rivers and the waters on the earth during the tribulation period and turns them to blood. And the angel, it says the angel in charge of the waters said, you're right in doing this. They have shed the blood of your prophets and your saints, so you've given them blood to drink. The angel whose job was it to take care of the waters, when God turned all the waters on the earth and going to turn all the waters to blood, the angel's going to say, you're right in doing this. And what this passage is saying in Ezekiel 31 and chapter 32 is, is this, when the other nations who were taken down with Assyria see the wickedness of Assyria, they'll be comforted or consoled. They'll know. God was right in doing what he did in judging them. And when Pharaoh and all his multitudes see the others who are all there, those other wicked nations, he wasn't listing their buddies. He was listing their enemies, wasn't he? When you see all the other wicked nations that are there, when you go, you'll understand that I was right in what I did. Let me say something to you. For years, I've had people say to me, Jim, I have loved ones that haven't trusted Christ And I have a hard time imagining how heaven can be good if I know my loved one's not there. Let me say something to you that I believe the scripture teaches. I believe without question that the Bible shows us that if you're in heaven and a loved one is not, when you get to heaven, you'll see things as God sees them. And even though you want that loved one to come to know Christ, you'll know that they're being in hell is just. And it's right. Go for it. I've heard Charles Stanley say that uh, we'll have no memory of that. At a certain point, that will happen. The scripture teaches after the millennial kingdom that at that point, when he makes the new heaven and the new earth, then the former things will be no longer remembered. But there'll be a period that during the whole millennial kingdom, you will know. It's not till the eternal state that he then erases memories and the former things won't be remembered. But during the millennial kingdom, you will know. Let me also remind you of that story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember how the the rich man awoke in Hades? Did he plead his case? He only pleaded for the ones who were still back alive. He never pleaded his case. He didn't say, hey, how can I get out of here? Or, hey, how about, I, I don't think I deserve, he knew he was there for the right reasons. Folks, I think the Bible teaches us that right now we see through a glass dimly, but one day we're going to see face to face in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 John chapter 3, the Bible talks about how we will, when we become with him and be like him, we'll see him as he is. I believe that as much as God hates, and I'm going to deal with that later on tonight, as much as God hates the death of the wicked, has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, at the same time, Everything he does is just and right. And if someone is spending eternity separated from God, it's right and it's just. Why? Did they have an opportunity to respond? And God gave them many opportunities and they chose. And God says, this is right. Pharaoh, when he goes or went to the pit, was consoled, if you will, with the fact that He was just as guilty as all these other nations. Now, let me show you one other passage that goes along that line. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 5. Paul had been dealing with the fact that there were people questioning whether or not he was a real apostle. And he said, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. But I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's something deep here that I want to hopefully help you to pull out. Paul, as he was dealing with people questioning whether or not he was a real apostle, he said, You know what? I don't even care if I'm judged by you or any human court. And in fact, I don't even judge myself. He goes, I don't know of anything against myself. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. But I'm going to wait until I meet Jesus, and he will show me the attitude of my heart. Right now, aren't many of us really good at rationalizing our sin? Don't we sometimes come up with good reasons why it's OK in this instance or whatever? We have a tendency to be that way. But let's be honest. When you stand before Jesus, you're not going to be judged for your sin, thank the Lord. But when you stand before Jesus at the behemoth seat, at the judgment seat, and he judges everything in your life from your salvation on as to what you'll be rewarded for and what you won't be rewarded for, things that you did out of impure motives versus things that were done out of pure motives, when you're standing before him, do you think that you will agree with him in all his assessments? Or do you think you'll say, well, let me explain. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? At that moment, I promise you, when it's all laid out and the one who sees clearly and knows the attitude of the heart says, you get no reward for that because you did that because you wanted the attention. I believe that you will all say, yes, sir, that's right. Do you understand what I'm saying? I believe the Bible says that those in hell realize the same thing. Doesn't the Bible say that at the name of Jesus... Every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Even those in hell will acknowledge, it's right that I'm here. You're right. You understand? Now, go back with me to chapter 32, verses 1 through 16. It says, in the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and say to him, you consider yourself a lion in the na- of the nations, but you're really like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet and foul the rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples and they'll haul you up in my dragnet and I'll cast you on the ground and on the open field I will fling you and cause all the birds of the heavens to settle on you and I will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I'll drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. "'I will trouble the hearts of many peoples "'when I bring your destruction among the nations "'into the countries that you've not known, "'and I'll make many peoples appalled at you, "'and the hair of their kings "'shall bristle with horror because of you. "'When I brandish my sword before them, "'they shall tremble every moment, "'everyone for his own life on the day of your downfall.'" "'For thus says the Lord God, "'The sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you. "'I will cause your multitude to fall "'by the sword of the mighty ones, "'all of them the most ruthless of nations. "'They shall bring to ruin the pride of Egypt "'and its multitude, all its multitude shall perish. "'I will destroy all its beasts from beside many waters.' And no foot of man shall trouble them any more, nor shall the hoofs of beasts trouble them. Then I will make their waters clear and cause their rivers to run like oil, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land of its des- it land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is a lamentation that shall be chanted. The daughters of the nations shall chant it over Egypt and over all her multitude shall they chant it, declares the Lord God. Now, if you don't remember, a lamentation is like a funeral song or a dirge or a sad song sung about, well, there's a whole book called Lamentations, right? And it's about Israel and the sadness of all of Israel's sin. Why would God have Ezekiel quote this lamentation for Egypt? I mean, we can understand him lamenting Israel's sin. Why would God have a lamentation or a lamenting for Egypt and its destruction? Very good. He cares about all people. He has no... Well, go back real quick to Ezekiel chapter 18. I referenced it earlier tonight. But in Ezekiel chapter 18, look at me show you two quick verses. Look at verse 23. God says, have I I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? You don't have to answer it. God answers it himself in verse 32. He says, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God cares for every nation. God wants, for God to love the world, he gave his only begotten son. Folks, don't be surprised that God would have a lament for Egypt, even though they were worthy of judgment at the same time, he had no pleasure in it. It doesn't make him happy that he has to do this because his desire is that they humble themselves and repent and acknowledge him as God and respond to him. And so he has lament. But let me also show you something that I want to just quickly point out. As much as God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how do you think God feels about the death of his saints? The Bible actually tells us. Go to Psalm 116. Go to Psalm 116 and look at verses 7 through 9 and then verse 15. To be honest with you, I've shared this passage at many a funeral over the years as a pastor, especially for an older believer, an older saint who's gone to be with the Lord. Look at Psalm 116, verses 7 through 9. It says, Return, O O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Isn't that an awesome picture of passing from this life to the next and getting out of this old body that's falling apart and stumbling and moving on to the next? I love sharing that at those types of situations. But look at verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But when they die... Where do they go? To a torment separated from him. The only time they're ever going to see him again is when they stand before him at the great white throne judgment, and then they're taken from there to Gehenna, the lake of fire. But for the believer, what did Jesus say? He says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. The Bible even shows us that Stephen, while he was being stoned, His eyes were opened and he saw heaven opened up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And don't miss this. The Bible tells us that when Jesus finished his work on the earth, he ascended to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen was passing from this life to the next, he stood. Isn't that cool? And he welcomed him. He welcomed him. He has no pleasure in the death of anyone. No pleasure, especially in the death of the wicked. But when it comes to the righteous, their death is present, precious in his eyes. Don't fear death. Don't be afraid of that time. That's something that I've had to wrestle with through this whole process. Because God hadn't told me yes or no whether I was going to live or die. And I still don't know. Even though I'm in remission, there's a just a little bit less than 50-50 chance that it's coming back. And if it comes back, it's bad. But you know what? It made me think a lot about what Paul said in Philippians chapter one when he said he didn't know if he was going to live or die, and he was torn between the two. Folks, I've wrestled with that over the last six months because the idea of heaven's pretty cool. Whenever I talk about leaving this body and going to heaven, my wife would say, "Don't talk like that." And I'd say, "Heaven's real, you know. It's real." And None of us should feel wrong for being excited about passing from this life to the next, but there's many Christians who are afraid of it. Don't be. Don't be. Because it's precious in His sight. Now, back in chapter 32, verses 7 through 8, some might try to take those verses and tie them to the end of the tribulation period, but I don't read it that way, and I want to show you why. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 32, He says, when I blot you out, Egypt, I'm going to cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. And the bright lights of heaven, I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now, there are some that quickly read that and they say, well, that just sounds like the end of the tribulation period. But why is this not the end of the tribulation period? Look closely. How is this different from what happens at the end of the tribulation period? Exactly. At the end of the tribulation period, the sun stops shining. Here, he's covering it with a cloud. In the tribulation period, the stars fall from the sky. Here, they just can't see them. In the tribulation period, the sky recedes like a scroll. At the end of the tribulation period, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're not even there anymore. Here, he's just saying, when that day comes and I bring my judgment on you and I bring the Babylonians down to judge you and I blot you out, I'm going to also make it dark over Egypt. Now, for those of you that know your Bibles, does that sound familiar? Is there another time in the history of Egypt that God ever made it dark? When? During the Exodus, during the place. Go with me to Exodus chapter 10. Go to Exodus chapter 10. Look at verses 21 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, if you try to figure out how God did this, you'll hurt yourself. All right? So don't even try. But God did it. By the way, there's lots of reasons why. If you know anything about Egypt and all their many gods they believed in, one of the gods they worshipped was the god of the Nile. What did he do to the Nile, by the way? He turned it to blood. Another god they worshipped, we've all heard of the god Ra, the sun god. That's another god that the Egyptians worshipped. What did he do? Shut it off. However he did it, it was three days they couldn't see. And nobody moved because they couldn't see. Yet where the Egyptians, so the Israelites were there in Egypt, they could see. And there was light. God, when he did this judgment on Egypt, brought darkness again. To remind them again of what he'd done before and of his greatness and his power. Remember, God had told them back when we saw in um, last week's study that their desolation was going to last how long? Do you remember? He was going to have them judged and scatter them and wipe them out and send them all into the nations and many of them be killed out there for 40 years. And then they'll be brought back into their land. And we see in here, part of the reason why he also had the land go desolate is so that the Nile River could become clear again and ro- flow fl- freely. They had muddied it up, and, and that's part of why the king Pharaoh there, uh, Hophra, was saying, this is the mighty Nile that I have made. What they had done was, that whole area was a desert, but what they had done is they had made all these irrigation ditches from the Nile, and whenever it flooded, it would water all the surrounding area. And Pharaoh was real proud of his uh, ability to do architecture and all that kind of engineering, and he was proud of it. But they had also muddied it all up, and God said, you know what? When I make the land desolate during that time period, it's going to run like oil. It's going to be clear. It's going to be pretty again, and I can't wait and you're gonna see that when we get to some chapters to come. When God describes the millennial kingdom and how this river is gonna flow from the temple all the way to the Dead Sea, and it's gonna get it actually describes how deep it gets in this whole process. You walk down this river so far, and it's only this deep. You go down this far, it's gonna be this deep. Wait till I show you, and it's actually gonna run and it's gonna turn the Dead Sea fresh. I can't wait to see what the world and the earth is gonna look like, and me personally, especially water. I don't know why, I just love, I could sit and watch a babbling brook for hours. There's something about it that mesmerizes me, but I love clear water. There's only a few places on the earth we even have semi-clear water. Imagine what our area would look like if we weren't dumping all of our stuff into the Indian River. Imagine what it would look like if it really was what it was designed to be. God sometimes empties land so the earth gets a refresher but during the millennial kingdom it's gonna be better but we'll get to that i'm gonna close tonight with a simple question but before you answer you have to use scripture now i i'm gonna be doing this a lot over the course of our time because i want to teach you how to answer any question i want you to learn how to live biblically I want you to learn how to let the Scripture be the filter for how you think and how you act and everything you are, because that's what the Bible teaches. We're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And too many Christians today are dealing with hard questions, questions by people in the world, and they'll they'll answer like this, well, I think God is like this. Stop. His ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are thoughts to even start to say, well, I think God is like is foolish. Don't go down that road. So I want you to begin to answer only with what the scripture says. So I'm going to ask you a question. And if you don't know, that's okay. That's what I'm here for. But the question is this. Is Egypt. Are they going to be allowed to be in the millennial kingdom? We've already seen that Edom won't be. We've seen how he's going to restore the fortunes of the Moabites, how he's going to restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. Is Egypt going to be in the millennial kingdom? Or does the fact that he gives four chapters in Ezekiel about Egypt's destruction, a hint that Egypt won't be in the millennial kingdom? And if you don't know, that's okay. Because the answer is in Zechariah chapter 14. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. We'll close with this tonight. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem, this is the end of millennial, sorry, end of the tribulation period, beginning of the millennial kingdom. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, that's Jesus, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the families of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So according to Scripture, is Egypt going to be in the Millennial Kingdom? Yes. The Bible shows us they will. Now some people would say, wait a minute, Jim. What is God threatening withholding rain? It doesn't rain in Egypt now. It's a desert area. That's why they had to use the Nile to irrigate. Oh, during the millennial kingdom, the weather patterns are going to be all different. Everything's going to be redone. It's going to be different. And Egypt's going to get rain. But if they don't come worship the Lord during the millennial kingdom, he'll shut it off. But the scripture tells us that Egypt's going to be during the, there in the millennial kingdom. This was a judgment on Egypt and that nation and on Pharaoh Hophra. But he allowed them, when the Persians took over, to go back into their land. They will never be a powerful nation again over the whole globe again, one to be feared like they had been before. But he had done it for lots of reasons we've seen over the last couple of weeks, so that Israel would realize the foolishness of them relying on them, and they would return to God. Pray for our country. Because as we've already seen, if God wants to show the nations around that he's in charge, And he does so by humbling a mighty nation that others look to. I mean, let's be honest, we don't just help Israel, do we? Aren't we a support to many, many nations around the globe? Don't we give lots of money, lots of help, lots of support? If God wanted to humble us and at the same time prove his glory among the surrounding nations, he could just as easily do to the United States what he's done in the past. And like I said, as it gets closer and closer to the time in which Israel will turn to Jesus... One of the ways in which he may do it was he, he may take away this nation that Israel leans on. Don't know how it's going to play out, but it hopefully will make each of us spend time each day praying for those in authority over us and praying for our nation. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.